Welcome to Prince Avenue. As Sky said earlier, my name is Adam Tarver, and I have the privilege of being the college ministry, one of the college ministry associates here at Prince. And it has been such an awesome transition into this new role. And I am so excited about the opportunity that I have to um, speak with you this morning and to share with you the things that the Lord has been laying on my heart for our time together. Uh, as I was preparing for this time, I, I realized that I really haven't had the opportunity to address you as a church family yet. And so before I do anything else, before I say anything else, I just want to simply take a moment and say thank you. Thank you so much for the way that you have loved me so well, encouraged me so well as I have transitioned into this new role. I have jokingly told multiple people um, that that the word of the year for me has been transition because in January 14th, I took this new role. And then on January 27th, I proposed to my now fiance. So I didn't waste any time with that one, got the job, got the girl. So um, yeah, you guys have been just incredible to me. And I am so, so thankful for everything that you have done for me. Um, I'm excited for this time that we have together. Uh, We're going to be in the book of John chapter 21 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip there. Uh, I'm going to say a quick word of prayer for us, and we're going to go ahead and start. As we enter into this time, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes, and, and would you just pray that God would, would, would you just pray that God would speak to you in this time? Pray that God would, would use me in this time. Pray that God would just speak directly to our hearts. I'm going to give you a moment to pray right where you sit, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you so much for who you are. God, that you are ever-present, that you are almighty, that your mercy is running after us, that you are here, that you are with us. And so, God, I just pray that you would be with us in this moment. God, we pray that your manifest presence would be among us, that you would speak directly to us. God, just move me out of the way. God, don't, don't let me get in the, in the way of this. God, just use, use me in this moment. God, please be with us. Use us. Speak to us. Show us more of, of who you are and, God, who you have called us to be. God, I love you. I praise you, and I am so excited for this morning. I'm so excited for this time that we have together. So please be with us and use these moments. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, as I was praying through what to speak about during this time, what to share with you this morning, I began to reflect and just think about where we are as a church family, what's going on here at Prince. I didn't want to just speak about something random. I really wanted God to use this moment and speak directly to us this morning. I wanted to know what he had to say to Uh, So I began to pray about that, and I began to think about all of the exciting things that are going on here at Prince Avenue. It's an exciting time to be at Prince, amen? Amen. We're adding new buildings. We're adding new facilities. Our family is growing. This is a wonderful time to be here at Prince. And in the midst of this, Pastor Josh has been encouraging us to continue to go for more, to seek for more, to not just get content with the way things are, but to continue asking for more, not for our own sake, not for our own comfort, but for his glory. 
We've been asking God that he would continue to pour out his blessing upon us so that we can continue to move forward in Jesus' name. And Pastor Josh has talked a lot about this idea that he doesn't want us to just simply play church. He wants us to really move forward in Jesus' name and to make a difference here in this community, in this nation, and in this world for Jesus' name. But he's also talked a lot about this idea that if we're going to accomplish this mission corporately, that we all have to be bought in individually, right? If we're going to accomplish this mission, this large-scale mission of leading people to trust and follow Jesus, then we must all be bought in as individuals. We each have a role to play in what God is doing here. And if you're anything like me, Talking about these things gets you excited. I cannot tell you how many Sunday mornings I have left this place and I've gotten in the car with Jillian and I've just been so excited about all that God is doing. We talk about how excited we are about how God is moving and how excited we are for the days that are ahead. And I hope that is you. I hope that you feel the sense of excitement in this place. I hope that you feel the passion. I hope that you feel God moving and you are excited and eager to engage with what the Lord is doing here. As I begin to think about that, I begin to ask myself, okay, I'm excited about this, but what would keep me from engaging in these moments? What would keep me from truly engaging in all that God is doing around me? Because I don't want to disengage. I want to continue to engage. So what is it that would keep me from engaging? And as I begin to reflect on that, I realize that oftentimes for me, the things that keep me from engaging in what God is doing all around me, they're more often than not, they're not external factors as much as they are internal factors. And what I mean by that is that they're not external things, they're not physical barriers or incapabilities that keep me from engaging in what God is doing all around me as much as they are internal factors, thoughts and beliefs in my own mind and in my own heart, feelings of insecurity, feelings of anxiety, things that keep me from engaging in what God is doing all around me. And whenever I go to engage, whenever I go to be a part of what God is doing all around me, oftentimes I begin to hear in my own head and in my own heart, Adam, you're not good enough. Adam, think about all that you've done wrong. Think about all the mistakes that you have made. Surely there's someone out there better than you. You're not good enough. You're not capable. And I know that that is not the happiest way to start this sermon this morning, but I think we can all relate to that to some degree, right? We all face those feelings of insecurity. We all face those feelings of anxiety. We feel those things, and if we are not careful, we can begin to listen to those voices and let them direct direct our lives instead of listening to the truth of God and what he has to say about who we are and what we are called to do. And so as I began to think about that, as I began to think about that reality in my life, and as I began to think about how I'm sure that is the case for many of you in this room this morning, I remembered a story from John chapter 21. And that's where we're going to be this morning. And this story is about a disciple by the name of Peter. And in this story, Peter is feeling the exact same things that I just talked about. He's feeling like he's not good enough, that he is inadequate, and that he is incapable of being a part of what is going on all around him. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip there with me to John chapter 21. I'm going to talk a little bit about the context before we actually dive into the actual text. If you've been in church for a while, then you know about Peter. 
You know who Peter is. If you don't know anything about Peter, that's totally fine. What you need to know about Peter is that Peter can tend to be a little impulsive, right? Like he's the kind of guy who jumps into action first and then thinks second, right? Perhaps some of you in the room can relate to that. I know I most certainly can. I have the typical firstborn syndrome. My parents are over here. They can tell you all kinds of funny stories later. But I'm kind of like that, and Peter is like that. He's this guy who just jumps into action without any regard for the consequences, and he thinks about it later. And sometimes that's a good thing. It's not always bad. Like whenever Jesus has his disciples together and he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? What do you have to say about me? Peter leaps forward and confidently he says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. He just jumps into action. Doesn't think about it, just jumps into action, right? And that's great. But this tendency in Peter also has negative consequences as well. Right, like Peter is the guy who says at one point, he says, even though all may fall away, I never will. I will never leave you. I will never leave you, Jesus. But yet where we pick up this morning in John chapter 21, we've seen Peter do exactly that. You see, on the night that Jesus was taken captive, whenever he was being led to eventually be crucified, we see Peter try to, try to stop this from taking place, even though Jesus had told him that this is exactly what needed to happen, right? And then we see later in John chapter 18, we see Peter warming himself around a fire, and he's asked by not one person, not two, but three different people, aren't you with Jesus? Don't you know this Jesus guy? Haven't I seen you with Jesus before? And Peter, he denies Jesus, not once, Not twice, but three separate times. And we're told in a different account, in the account of Luke, that after he denied Jesus the third time, that he actually looks up and he makes eye contact with Jesus. And in this moment, the rooster crows and Peter is left feeling devastated. He's crushed because the weight of his failure has landed upon him. And so what does he do? He flees and he weeps. This is what Peter has done. Jesus, of course, is in taken. He is led and he is crucified and he is buried in a tomb. But praise be to God, he did not remain dead, right? He rises from the grave and he begins to appear to many disciples. And all of a sudden, whispers of the resurrection begin to spread and hope begins to rise. There's a little excitement again, excitement in the air. Hope begins to rise. And at this point, we're told that an angel of the Lord actually appears to three women by the tomb and tells them to go and tell the disciples. Tell the disciples and Peter to meet Jesus in Galilee. That's what the text says. The angel says to these three women, tell the disciples and Peter to meet Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. Why include the and Peter there? Many commentators agree that it is because if his name was not explicitly stated, Peter probably wouldn't have gone. Otherwise, why? Because he is defining himself by his failure, by his insecurity, and by his feelings of inadequacy. Yet the angel singles him out specifically and says, tell the disciples and Peter to meet Jesus in Galilee. And so they go. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 21 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along as we kind of walk through this text together. We're going to walk through the entire story, and then we're going to talk about some practical application towards the end. 
the text opens up by telling us that after these events had taken place, Jesus appeared to his disciples again by the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is also known as the Sea of Galilee. It's also known as the Sea of Galilee. And we see in this text that it is Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, that they're all together. We don't know how long they've been waiting there. The text doesn't tell us that. But we know why they're there. They're there because they've been told that Jesus is going to meet them there. And in this moment, in verse 3, Peter looks at the other disciples and he says something rather interesting. He says, I am going fishing. Now, this is one of those details that if we're not careful, we can just kind of breeze over it. And we can think that it's no big deal. It's just Peter saying that he's going fishing. Maybe he's just trying to pass the time. He's a little bored. He wants to go fishing and have some fun and try to wait on Jesus that way. We could think that. But you need to pause and think critically about this. Think about who it is that's saying this. This is Peter, a career fisherman who left a life of fishing behind in order to follow Jesus with his life. This is Peter saying to the other group, I am going fishing. You see, in this moment of uncertainty in Peter's life, he looks towards the only thing that makes sense to him, and he returns to fishing. He goes and he goes fishing, and the other disciples come with him. And yet, even this thing that makes sense to him, even this thing that's a a way of escape for him, even that doesn't work out. The text continues and tells us that they fish all night long. And so we see that even the thing that Peter thought he understood, the thing that made sense to Peter, the thing that was a way of escape of his current reality leaves him feeling empty-handed. You ever been there? You ever felt that before? That nothing in life is going right and you're just looking for some way of escape and the way of escape you choose, even that leaves you feeling empty? That's where Peter's living right now. That's the tension that Peter is living in. I want you to feel that as this story continues. The text continues to say that as day begins to break, that Jesus appears on the shore. But the disciples, they don't know that it's Jesus. They don't recognize him yet. And my text says that Jesus calls out and he says to them, children, do you have any fish? In the original language there, that word for children is actually the word for little boys. So Jesus is calling out to him, out to his disciples, saying, little boys, do you have any fish? You got to know that the disciples are frustrated, right? They have fished all night long. They haven't caught a single thing. You know that they're tired physically, spiritually, emotionally. They are exhausted. And now there's this man on the shore who they do not recognize calling out to them, children, do you have any fish? And in their frustration, I love that the text just says they reply to him and all they say is no. No, we don't have any fish. They haven't caught anything. Frustrated. And here's where the text gets interesting. Here's where the text gets interesting because Jesus calls out to them again and says, well, put your net on the right side of the boat. Put your net on the right side of the boat and there you will find some. And so the disciples do so. They lower their nets on the right side of the boat and all of a sudden the nets swell with fish so much so that they're not even able to haul the nets into the boat. They are overflowing with fish. Now I want you to pause right here. Because this might sound familiar to you. This might sound familiar to you, perhaps because you've read it here in John chapter 21, or perhaps 
because you've seen it in another instance in the life of Peter. Because you see, Jesus used this same miracle to call Peter to follow him the very first time. Whenever Jesus first calls Peter, he does it by the same body of water on the Sea of Galilee after Peter had fished all night long and had caught absolutely nothing. And he tells Peter, hey, throw down your nets one more time. Throw down your nets one more time. And whenever he does so, the nets swell with fish so much so that he's not able to haul them on to the boat. So what we see here is that Jesus is literally recreating the moment of first connection with Peter. As if to say to Peter, hey Peter, I still want you. I still want you. I know you failed, but I still want you. And it says this moment in this story that the light bulb goes off. And Peter recognizes that this man on the shore is no mere man but he is the risen Jesus. And so what does he do? The text tells us that he throws on his cloak and throws himself into the water and begins to swim to shore. This is not graceful. This is impulsive Peter saying, I am going to Jesus. And he dives into the water and he begins to swim. The text says that the other disciples just simply row a little bit because they're only about 100 yards off. But Peter decides he's going for a swim this morning. And he goes and he meets Jesus on the shore. And what's waiting for them? But Jesus has cooked them breakfast on a charcoal fire. He has fish, he has bread, and he invites them to come and to eat. He does not need what they are bringing to the table, yet he invites them anyway. He invites them anyway. He prepares them breakfast, and they begin to eat. We continue a little bit further in the text, and we see that after breakfast is over, After breakfast is over, Jesus and Peter, they begin to have a little bit of a conversation. And the text tells us that Jesus looks at Peter and says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What I want you to notice here is that Jesus addresses Peter by his proper name, which he almost never does in any of the other gospels except for in this moment right here. Simon, son of John. It's like that moment. It reminds me of that moment like whenever you're in the room and you hear your mom from the other room and she speaks up and she says, Adam, David, and you know that something's about to get real, right? Like it's a real conversation is about to take place. Like she just called you by your proper name, right? This is what Jesus is doing. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And now the these here could apply to one one of two things. It could apply to the fish, And Jesus could be asking Peter, do you love me more than a life of fishing? Do you love me more than this life that you're trying to return to? Or Jesus could be talking about the disciples around him because Peter had said, I will follow you to the end. Even though everyone else may fall away, I will follow you to the very end. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter responds. He looks at the Lord and he says, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus responds. He says, then tend to my sheep. Then take care of my people. That's what that means. Tend to my sheep. Take care of my people. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, if you love me, then let your love for me come out in your actions. Lead people. Tend to my sheep. But what I want you to see here is that our English translation falls a little short 
Because whenever Jesus looks at Peter and he says, do you love me? He's using this word agape for love. Agape, you may have heard before, is a form of unconditional love. It's unconditional love. So Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter, he responds, but he uses a different word for love. The word that he uses is phileo, which is a form of brotherly love or brotherly affection. And so whenever Jesus asks Peter, he says, do you agape me? Peter responds, he says, well, I I phileo you. And in that, you can feel the hesitation in Peter, undoubtedly, because he is thinking about his failure. He's thinking about his past mistake, and he's not willing to say that he loves Jesus with an unconditional love because he knows that he has failed. But Jesus responds anyway, he says, if you love me, then tend to my sheep. And then the conversation happens again. Jesus looks at Peter again and says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, why? Well, I phileo you. And he says, feed my lambs. And then we see the conversation happen a third time. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But except on this third time, Jesus uses Peter's own word for love. He says, do you phileo me? As if to say to Peter, do you actually love me? Even that way, Peter, do you love me? This is in this point in the text that we see that Peter is grieved in his spirit because you see the weight of what is happening lands on Peter. And I want you to see the weight of what's happening this morning. Remember, I told you that whenever they came ashore, that Jesus had breakfast prepared for them. He had breakfast prepared for them on a charcoal fire is what the text says. Again, that's one of those details that if we're not careful, we can just kind of breeze over real quick. But what you need to know is that the word in the original language for charcoal fire is a very, very specific word. There's fires all over the Bible. God appears in fire. There's a burning bush. I mean, there's all kinds of fire all over the Bible. But this word for charcoal fire was only used one other time in the entire New Testament. And it's in John chapter 18, whenever Peter is standing around a charcoal fire and he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three separate times. And here in John 21, we see Jesus having Peter standing around a charcoal fire as he asks Peter if he loves him, not once, not twice, but three separate times. This is no mere coincidence. This is Jesus not only recreating the moment of first connection with Peter, but also recreating the moment of Peter's greatest failure. As if to say to Peter, hey, I love you, I still want you, but we've got to deal with this so that you can move on, so that we can move on. There's more work to be done here, Peter. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. So he says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Jesus continues to tell Peter of how Peter is going to die. And we don't have time to get into all of that this morning. It's incredibly interesting. But we just don't have time to dive into that part of this text. And then he ends his conversation with Peter by saying this. He says, you follow me. 
follow me. The same call that was given to Peter whenever Jesus first called him is the same call that's given to Peter right here, even after he had failed miserably. Jesus says, you follow me. And how does Peter respond? Does he joyfully go realizing that he has been forgiven and he's just excited for what is about to happen? No, he doesn't because he's Peter, right? And Peter instead the text tells us that he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he sees John. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, in many ways a model disciple. And he looks at John and then he looks back at Jesus and he says, well, what about this man? What about this guy? And Jesus looks at Peter and it says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? It's as if Jesus is looking at Peter and saying to him, I'm not talking to you about John, Peter. I'm talking to you about you. You follow me. Don't worry about the plans that I have for John's life. I'm talking to you about you. You come and you follow me. You follow me. And that's where our story ends. I love this story. And I wanted us to to look at it and examine it this morning because I believe it shows us something about Jesus that we all desperately need to know, that we all desperately need to see. So if you're a note taker, jot this down, that this story shows us that Jesus relentlessly pursues us with grace and with truth. Jesus relentlessly pursues us with grace and truth truth. This is the picture of Jesus that I want you to see this morning, the one who pursues you with grace and with truth. And church, that's not just what he does, it is who he is. He is filled with grace and with truth. We've seen that since the very beginning of the story. John 1 opens up by saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father filled with grace and with truth. That's John 1, 14. John 1, 14 shows us that Jesus came and he is filled with grace and truth. And John 21 shows us how he pursues us in grace and truth in our lives, that even in the midst of failure, Jesus is still pursuing us. And he's pursuing us with both grace and with truth. Grace to forgive us from our failures, truth to tell us who we truly are, to deal with our failures and encourage us to continue to move on. So we need to see Jesus as the Jesus who pursues us with grace and truth. We need to fix our eyes upon him. And we must let this reality land in our hearts and change the way that we move into the world. Because here's the deal, church. Here's the deal. It's easy to say that we believe that Jesus is filled with grace and truth. That is easy to do. If I gave you a pop quiz this morning, which I'm not going to do, if I gave you a pop quiz this morning and I asked you that question, you would all get it right. But it's a much different thing to believe it at our core and let it change the way we move into the world. But that is what I want for you. I want you to see Jesus as the one who relentlessly pursues you with grace and with truth. If we're going to be a church body that continues to go for more, to ask for more, to seek to be a part of what God is doing, then we must be a church that looks to Jesus and believes that he pursues us with grace and truth. And we must move into the world in the exact same way.
If we truly believe this, our lives will reflect it. Our lives will look differently than the world around us. So the question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like to live out this truth? What does it look like to live like we actually believe this? There are three things that we see from this story that I want you to jot down. Um, The first is that if we truly believe that Jesus relentlessly pursues us with grace and with truth, then we need to, one, stop letting your doubts control you. Stop letting your doubts control you. That's exactly what we see Peter do here in this story, right? In a moment of uncertainty, in a place where he doesn't understand what's going on, he can't see what's about to happen next. He feels uncertain. He begins to doubt, and he lets that doubt begin to dictate his actions, and he lets that doubt lead him back to a life of fishing, trying to find some way of escape, right? And it's easy for us to sit here and point fingers at Peter and say, Peter, come on, man. Like, you know Jesus. You walked with him. You know what he's about. You know the type of person he is. Surely you should know that he's going to come through for you, Peter. But if we're real, if we're honest this morning, we all do this, right? We all face moments of uncertainty in life where things are incredibly confusing and we have no idea what's coming for us. We have no idea what's next. And in those moments, it's very easy to doubt. And I'm not up here trying to tell you that you should never have any questions about life because I get it. I'm only 25 years old, but I understand that life can get incredibly complicated. Life can get incredibly confusing. Life can be incredibly painful. But what I'm telling you is that in the moment moments of uncertainty. We don't need to become fixated on our present circumstances, but we need to lift our eyes to our ever-present God. We need to lift our eyes to our ever-present God. We need to trust that he is there. We need to trust that he is guiding us. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's for every circumstance in life, church, not just the good ones, not just the favorable ones. We trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. And when the moments of uncertainty come, we don't get fixated on our present circumstances, but we lift our eyes to our ever-present God. We lift our eyes to our ever-present God. So in the moments in your life, where things don't make sense, where things are painful, in your careers, when the business deal goes south, in your marriages, where things are just rough and hard, whenever you're raising your children and you have no idea what to do in your current situation, when you get the diagnosis back and it's not a favorable one and you're in the moments of uncertainty, do not let those moments dictate your behavior. You lift your eyes off of your present circumstance and you lift them to your God because even in the moments in life that don't make sense, even in the moments in life that are incredibly painful, that hurt and are not good, God is still good. God is still good and he's right there with you. And so you look to him and you don't let doubt control you. You don't move forward in doubt. You move forward in faith. And you trust God to lead you. You look to him. So stop letting your doubts control you. The second thing, stop defining yourself by your failure. Stop defining yourself by your failure. Again, that's exactly what we see Peter do here in this story. He fails. 
and he fails big, and he fails publicly, and people know about it. And he's letting that failure define him. And he lets that failure dictate his actions. And, and he's not thinking about himself as a loved disciple by Jesus. He's thinking about himself as a massive failure. And again, this is something that we often do. Whenever we mess up, whenever we come up short, it's easy to look at our failure and say, because of this, I am no longer qualified for fill in the blank. Because of this, surely God is not going to bless me. Whatever it may be, we are so quick to we're so quick to define ourselves by our failure. But whenever you see Jesus as a Jesus who pursues you with grace and with truth, you realize that you don't have to define yourself by your failure anymore. You define yourself by the grace of God and the truth of who he says that you are. Not the lies of what the enemy is trying to tell you you are, but the truth of what he says that you are. We see him do this with Peter, that Jesus pursues Peter with grace. He prepares him breakfast. He welcomes him in. He recreates that moment of first connection as if to say to Peter, I still want you. I still care about you. I still love you. But he also recreates Peter's moment of greatest failure as if to say to Peter, I love you, but we got to deal with this, Peter. We got to deal with this so that you can move on so that you can move on. See, it's, whenever I first read this story, it's kind of easy to see Jesus like a, a football coach who's making Peter watch film of all of his mistakes and saying, hey, do you love me? You sure? Because it didn't look like it whenever you denied me, so let's run it again, right? That's what it's, it's easy to see Jesus like that. That's not what he's doing here. He's recreating this moment of greatest failure to show Peter, hey, I still love you. Yes, you did wrong, but let's deal with it so that you can move on. Don't define yourself by your failure anymore, Peter. Define yourself by grace and truth of who I say that you are. And he says the same thing to us, church. He says the same thing to us. He still pursues us with grace and with truth. And I want to pause right here. I want to hang out here for just a little bit more. Because I understand that there may be some of you in this room this morning who you hear me say that. And you say, that sounds great. That sounds good. I love to think about a Jesus who pursues me with grace and truth, but here's the deal. You have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the mistakes that I have made. You have no idea what my hands have touched, what my eyes have seen, what words have come out of my mouth. You have no idea the depth of my failure. Surely Jesus couldn't just dismiss my failures. If that's you this morning, I want you to hear me say this. You're right. I don't know you. I don't know the depth of your, the darkness of your past. I don't know the mistakes that you have made. But what I do know is this, is that Jesus did not come to just dismiss your failures. He did not come to just dismiss your failures. He's not doing that with Peter here. The reason that Jesus is able to have this conversation with Peter is not because Jesus is choosing to just dismiss Peter's failures. It's because Jesus had already paid for Peter's failures. And the same is true for you, church. The same is true for you. Jesus did not come to just dismiss your failures. No, because of the cross, your failures are not dismissed. Your failures have been paid for in full, paid for in full. And so you can move forward choosing not to define yourself by your failure anymore. Because get this, if you belong to Jesus, if you have trusted and followed him with your life, he chooses not to define you by your failure. So you should not either. You shouldn't either. He sees you 
as his beloved, as one who he died to save. So do not define yourself by your failures. Define yourself by the grace of Jesus Christ and the truth of who he says you are, that you in Christ Jesus are a child of God. So you stop letting your doubts control you. You stop letting fear, excuse me, you stop defining yourself by your failure. And the third thing is that you've got to stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop comparing yourself to others. Again, this is what we see Peter do. In this moment that Jesus addresses him and he's calling him to follow him, Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks to John. And he begins to compare himself to another. Again, this is something we all do. Either we think that we're better than the people around us or we think that we're not good enough and we begin to disqualify ourselves and we begin to think that we will never measure up. I'm not as good as him. I'm not as good as her. Surely he wants to use him or her instead of using me because I'm not good enough. We begin to compare ourselves to other people. Whenever we take our eyes off of Jesus and we begin to look at those around us, it's very easy for us to compare ourselves to those that are around us. And what I want you to see this morning is that whenever we see Jesus as the one who pursues us with grace and truth, all of a sudden we're freed up from the trap of comparison. We don't have to compare ourselves to others anymore because we realize the truth of what Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, that we are God's masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. That in Christ Jesus, he has created you into something new. He created you. He knows you. He has provided a way for you to be in relationship with him. And he has good works for you to do in the kingdom of God. But church, you will never fully take hold of this if you're continuing to take your eyes off of Jesus and look at those around you. You never will. And so we must stop comparing ourselves to others. We must fix our eyes on Jesus and continue to move forward and pursue him and to run the race that he has set before us, not looking to those around us, but continuing to focus our gaze on Jesus Christ, the one who loves us, the one who paid the penalty that we could not, who invites us into relationship with him and who invites us to join us, join him with him, join with him on mission in this world. You must stop comparing yourself to others. As we come to a close this morning, the band's going to come back up, but what I want you to see is that these things that I just mentioned, whenever we define ourselves by our failures, whenever we let our doubts control us, and whenever we compare ourselves to others, all of these things, they paralyze us, and they keep us from moving forward. They keep us fixed in our one current position. They keep us from moving forward to what God has for us, And like I told you at the beginning, I don't want you to let anything keep you from engaging in what God is doing all around you. I do not want you to let these things paralyze you. In the midst of all of these things, the call to us is the same call that was given to Peter. You follow me. You follow me. We must leave these things behind. We must follow him. This is what I want for you, church. This is what I want for you. If we're going to be a church that's filled with individuals who want to move forward in Jesus' name, who want to make an actual impact, who don't just wanna simply sit here on Sundays and play church, we wanna actually make an impact for the kingdom's cause, then you must see Jesus this way. 
You must see Jesus as the one who has relentlessly pursued you with grace and with truth. You must let that reality land upon your heart and you must move into the world differently, filled with grace and truth as you move into the world around you. That is what I want for you. He has pursued you with grace and with truth so you can trust and follow him with your life. Would you pray with me? As you bow your heads and you close your eyes, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life, going on in your heart. Maybe you're in a moment of some uncertainty and it's controlling you. It really is. And you're dealing with it every single day. Maybe you're in here this morning and you have failures in your past that you cannot seem to move forward from. And they may be failures that nobody else knows about but you, but they're still defining you and they're still dictating your actions. Or maybe you're in here and you cannot help but look to those around you and think that you're not good enough. You continue to compare yourself to others. Wherever you're at this morning, I wanna plead with you. Lift your eyes off of your present circumstance and lift your eyes to Jesus. Trust him, follow him. He has pursued you with grace and with truth. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, to trust him with your life, to surrender your life to him. And your life is riddled with doubt. Your life is riddled with failure and you are just a mess right now. I want you to hear me say this. Today is the day that all of that can change. All of that can change. Wherever you are this morning, I wanna encourage you to deal with what's going on in your lives. God has good things in store. He has good works for us to accomplish. He wants to use us here in this world, but we cannot let these things paralyze us anymore. We must continue to move forward. And so wherever you're at, whatever's going on in your life, whatever's going on in your heart, I wanna encourage you to deal with it today. I'm gonna pray here in just a moment. We're gonna sing one more song. And here at the front, we're gonna have pastors and prayer partners who would love the opportunity to pray with you. Take advantage of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are a God who pursues us with grace and with truth, that you love us, that you care about us, and that you've provided a way for us to enter into relationship with you and to be used by you in this world. God, may we see you for who you truly are, and may we let it change everything about us. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.